Okay, everybody, welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. This is Thad Forrester, and it's episode number 60. And this is a special episode because it represents the 8th anniversary of the death of my brother Mark. And so, once again this year, I have kind of a special episode to talk. This is solely really about Mark and his life and his last few days and last little while on Earth in Afghanistan. And so I have with me today, um, now he's Major Wes Wilson. Uh, he was captain at the time of uh, in 2010, and he was Mark's ODA detachment commander. So Wes, man, thank you for joining me in this tight window that we have to speak. It's my pleasure to you know be a part of this and help share and contribute to Mark's legacy. He was a one-of-a-kind guy. Um, true professional and master of his craft. I'm very fortunate to have worked with him. Well, you were a big help in Mark's book, My Brother in Arms. Uh, you're, you're quoted and referenced uh, multiple spots in the book. And so, man, you helped us out with maps and just clarification and uh, all kinds of good stuff. I mean, really, you were a great reference. Uh, I would like to start with... We, can you take us back and tell us about that final mission? Um, you know, I guess it was a, it was Mark was killed in day two of it. How long was the mission supposed to be? You know, how big was this thing, and how many people were involved? And from what countries was it? Just U.S. and Afghan nationals, or did it also involve Aussies or you know whoever? So the mission was planned for three days, and there was potential for a fourth day. Um, in terms of the size, there was probably 150 to 200 compounds that we had to clear through, probably about 30 kilometers in length. And some at some points, it was only a kilometer wide of you know, small village buildings and their agricultural area. Some, in some places, it was almost four kilometers wide. So in, in terms of personnel, there was two U.S. ODAs, so that's about 24 Americans with their Air Force uh, combat controller attachments, so there's two there, and then Navy EOD attachments and mechanics and uh, signal intercept guys, and and then um, as far as foreign forces in our sector, so it was, it was multiple, there's two ODAs in our sector, but there were two or three other ODAs participating in the clearance as well as the Special Forces Company headquarters. Um, and there were Australians in the Valley, but not in our sector. And then in terms of uh, aerial support, it was primarily American, but, um, and I can't recall if during this, you know, the three-day period we were clearing, if we had support from the French Mirage aircraft, but I know Mark had worked with French Mirage aircraft um, on other, on other missions leading up to that while we were there together. So hey, what, he, what um, did he say about the French pilots? <laughs> <Do you remember? laughs> well, yeah, um, it's funny you bring that up. So it's not I don't blame the pilots per se, but every country had a different ROE uh, rules of engagement that they had to work within as per their national caveats, and you know I, I don't recall exactly what the French rules of engagement were, but they did not fly as low as the American aircraft did. And I don't know the capabilities of their 
pod, which gives them sight on the ground. But essentially, Mark had a lot of frustration when working with the French. One, because of the language barrier. Obviously, they spoke English, but it's tough for uh, a guy from Alabama to understand French version of English or French accent of English. And then two, they just couldn't get as low or see what Mark needed them to see. And uh, I know Mark did a phenomenal job of describing the terrain um, because we got nothing but compliments on his work from the helicopter pilots and the A-10 pilots and all the other pilots that work with him. They would always get on track very quickly, but the, the French mirages, and I don't know whether it was, the, like like I said, their ROE, they couldn't get them low enough or the capabilities of their uh, their pod and their aircraft, but they just could never seem to find what Mark was trying to describe. And I'm, I know, I, I'm confident that wasn't due to any shortcomings on his part because he, he got nothing but compliments from the aircraft. But, yeah, he had a lot of frustration when the French came. He would just send them off, and we'd probably back away and wait 30 minutes or an hour until – another aircraft would come on station that he would find more productive. What did Mark bring to your team? Well, you know, you never want to send a person where you can send a bomb. And so Mark's job was to bring in the bombs and he did a a very good job of doing that. And, uh, I think the air, like I said before, the, the pilots, whether fixed wing or rotary wing were, they were happy to work with him. One, because Mark and the ODAs he worked with, you know, us and, and prior to us, so was always able to find targets for the aircraft. But he just was able to build rapport. And, um, you know, he has a good country voice and really kind and um, and high energy. And, you know, I don't know, just a, a voice that the aircraft trusted. And, uh, and so he was able to get... Uh, get us whatever we needed and i think and that goes into mission planning too he would always call the unit that would would be supporting the day of our mission he'd call them in advance and explain what we would expect to see on the battlefield what we'd expect to encounter and tell them that and so the aircraft always felt comfortable before we even needed them uh of what the situation was going to be like so like i said he's very thorough guy uh extremely intelligent and uh able to build rapport which is what we needed and he he would bring in bring in the the rain bring in bombs whenever we needed it and right on target all the time did he really seem like a you know like a kid in a candy store and that really he loved what he did didn't he he did uh i wouldn't i mean you a lot of people say passionate about their job but for mark like being a combat controller definitely did not seem like a job for him. Like, I think, uh, you know, God made him to, to, for that purpose. And, uh, he just enjoyed it. He loved being in the military, loved being in the Air Force. He loved where we're at, doing what we were doing. He was just happy to show up to work every day and, uh, full energy, always upbeat. Yeah, he loved it. it. It definitely was not a job for him. He enjoyed what he was doing. Yeah. So, Wes, what about those now? You, this is a, a pretty big mission. Oh, by the way, so you, you said you had to clear several different villages or, or compounds. I mean, really, what was the deal? Was there, there uh, Taliban hide, supposedly hiding out in these areas, or what was the, the purpose? 
So there, the village or the yeah, the village we were at is called O'Shea, and it was on the north side of where two rivers meet. So the rivers right below us, the Hellman River and the Soccer River, kind of came to a Y. And so um, there was a bridge to the west of us on the Soccer River that had washed out. I want to say like in 2006, there was bad flooding in Afghanistan. And then a bridge over the Hellman, just like straight south of us, that had sunk or something like that. Yeah, or maybe it didn't exist. I don't, I don't know. But there's really no way across the river except for when the water was low other than like raft ferries so they couldn't bring big trucks and uh the roads in that part of afghanistan are not not real wide and they're not they weren't paved and there's not a lot of good roads in in afghanistan at all at least in the rural areas and so what the taliban had done since there was a base with you know u.s forces in o'shea they kind of cut off o'shea trying to turn the population against the americans and in August, in this mission, you know, when Mark was killed was late September, but by by the middle of August, they did not even have the flour to make bread in O'Shea, and we were talking about trying to have the Americans fly in supplies via helicopter just to help out the population, so they're kind of getting squeezed out. Um, I wouldn't say that the population was turning against us at all, but they were just kind of starting to leave the area because it was difficult for them to, to live um, you know, by the time we got to mid-September. And the way the Taliban would do that is they would cut off the roads, they'd do roadblocks, um, and they they knew the population better than us, obviously being from the same country and sharing the culture and language. So if they knew it to be people that were supportive of, of Afghan defense forces or the U.S. forces in the area, they would just burn their supplies or they'd take it. Um, or if they were, you know, just... Um, capitalists trying to get supplies there to make money and they were going to jack up the price once it got to O'Shea, then they would just tax, you know, the, these entrepreneurs trying to make money on a, on a population. So it was just a real, Wes, I lost you. Okay. Okay. okay, okay. There we go. The village, um, the village Shamashad, uh, that we're trying to clear actually on the map, it had three different names. I think, uh, Jengalak and something else. We we just called it all Shamashad. I think you know it was probably a Russian map, quite a bit dated. But yeah, it was it was had a high population that was supportive to the Taliban. At least uh, they weren't for the government of Afghanistan. And so we they had surrounded their village with IEDs. So before we could even get there, we were trying to essentially breach a minefield, and then like any obstacle in terms of talking tactically you want to have observation and field the fire on the obstacle so our guys are trying to detonate the ieds in place before we drove through and trying to do that while under observation and fire so it took it took a lot of effort just to to get into the village before we started clearing compounds it was a, a very deliberate and well planned fight on both parts both the u.s and the taliban so did you do a lot of that clearing on the 28th, or was that prior to even the 28th? On you know, the, with the, the minefields and to get to the village. No, because uh, if you at the time the U.S. armies we could not do night operations, and so the more we got up real early the morning of the 28th, 
and started breaching the IED belt and then cleared all day on the 28th. And, you know, that's another part of this of the story and the relationship Mark and I held. So Mark and the, as Mark, as the combat controller, he needed to have um, the ODA commander, the ground force commander's initials, which was me, uh, to send to the aircraft before they could drop or fire any ordnance, any, any rounds or bombs or anything. And so we were always side by side. And then Captain Willie Lyles was the ODA commander of the other ODA, and he had been injured August 28th, and his replacement had not shown up yet in country. And so for this mission, I was the only, you know, commission officer. And so the first day, Mark was in my truck beside me as it, we had always operated. And then the next day, um, George er, uh, Earhart, who um, was the other He's a JTAC. He was tired, you know, because he had done the whole first day. And I think Mark was also anxious. He wanted to be on the ground and clear clear buildings. Probably more fun than sitting in the trucks with me, with which is a better comms platform. And we had uh, the the roads are kind of elevated above the villages and the fields, so we could see a little bit better. But he wanted to give George a break, and so George sat with me in the trucks on the 29th, and and Mark was on the ground that day with the dismounted element. Yeah, that kind of haunts George to this day, I think. That Yeah, it, that I mean, it, it haunts ground. me too. I mean, that was the only day that Mark was not within arms arms reach me. Yeah. What were yours and your team's expectations of, you know, what would happen with this mission? I think, you know, Captain Willie Lyles, he had stepped on the IED the month before and then I think August 8th of that year, we had uh, two Americans, one from my team, Del Roman, and one from the other team had been um, struck by small arms fire. But not, they, they weren't serious injuries, either one of those. And Willie's was from the IED. So I, I don't think any of us would have been surprised by an IED strike. Um, small arms fire, you know, we have our body armor and helmets. You know, maybe we're expecting some some wounds but i don't think any of us expected casualties and so that was kind of difficult for us to bear and we had read all of the intelligence reports and like i said this was a well planned mission thoroughly planned and rehearsed both on the u.s and with our afghan partners and uh we had never seen anything about a dragonov sniper rifle especially not any anything with a scope um, and so when Cal and Mark were killed by a sniper who had a Dragunov sniper rifle with the scope, that was that was a shocker for us. I didn't remember that he had a scope. Wow. Maybe I never knew. I don't know. Maybe I forgot that. So what about on the 29th? Okay, so y'all, you find a place and you sleep. I know um, Mark and George, I think, stayed up talking to aircraft for a while. I don't know, did you and Mark, did y'all talk any that night, late at night? Oh, yeah. Like I said, we were always within arm's reach. Every single mission we had done since we showed up in the beginning of July, my team, Mark, was there before I got there. And so I know I would have slept right by him, and he he and uh, George would have rotated shifts on the radio, uh, talking to the air coverage that we had that night. So we probably talked about, you know, where we had cleared up to that point, and then what the game plan was for the next day and we, is probably how we would have closed out the night. So we, 
Mark and George would have talked to me about what their game plan was, where they're going to have the aircraft look that night while we rested. And then in the morning, we'd have gone over our plan again, and they'd probably brief me back on everything that the aircraft saw over the course of the night. And then, you know, and that's kind of when this, this switch out happened, and George stayed with me that day, and, and Mark went forward with uh, Master Sergeant Matt Duffy, who's now Sergeant Major, retired. And, um, and they went forward from there. And how many people was it with that dismounted element that Mark was with, Mark and Matthew? Uh, so the entire dismounted element, there was, I think, three or maybe four U.S. groups of dismounts, probably like uh, three to six guys apiece. And then with them, they would have had, uh, you know, five or six Afghans, whether they be Army or police Afghans. So all together in their dismounted element was probably almost ten guys. But I think it was Matt and Cal and Mark and a linguist, Named Steve Dave, which we can talk about more if you want, and then a squad of uh, Afghan army, maybe four to six of those guys. Okay. Were with okay. them, and then there have been two other, two or three other elements, kind of with a similar composition and makeup. Okay. So that day, you know, we, we've gotten a lot of the the pictures that we know of off of Mark's camera, and you know, we can, we check the dates, and we there's several pictures made those last two days. Uh, one of those is uh, one of those we've we've posted a lot that has Mark sitting on a little motorcycle. There's some where y'all have found some guys and zip tied them, zip tied their wrist, mm-hmm. and um, and you've explained some. Of, I, I've actually reached out to you, I think, to tell me what's going on. But do you mind just kind of describing y'all went in somewhere and you had tied some guys up or tied their wrist up, and how long did you tie them up for, and kind of what was the reasoning for that? As the dismount element would clear through a village, you know, anytime there were military-age males, they would kind of consolidate them and send them towards, have them escorted out towards the mounted element, which is where I was at. And we would keep the, the military-age males in a group that way. And in order to maintain speed on the objective, we'd continue to clear and then... Um, before late afternoon would stop clearance and then at that time we would go back and start uh talking to the military males about you know do a, like a little bit tactical questioning um about what they were doing and and we'd always mark we'd have a packet that we would um attach with them of like what building they came from and what all was found in the building whether there was you know rifle or id materials or batteries you know for an id or radios or you know debt cord uh, homemade explosives stuff like that Hmm. yeah and if there was any incriminating evidence then we would obviously turn them over to the afghan police or the afghan army you know they'd go to their custody for prosecution so some of the pictures they're smiling in it's just kind of funny you know that they are kind of detained and smiling for a picture um, well, that might be at the instruction of the American through the interpreter. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just, <laughs> so, and some uh, of them are, you know, we, we treated them well unless there was a reason to to treat them otherwise. Mm-hmm. It, so, Wes, is it true that day on the 29th, it wasn't as active as the 28th until all hell broke loose in that, that, that last little while? Is that right? Was it almost almost boring there for just a short period of time on the 29th? 
Yeah, the 29th in the morning, you know, so again, we started around sunrise, um, and the whole morning until about noon had gone very smoothly and fast, a lot quicker than the day before, and partly due to the fact that we had already passed the IED belt, so the mounted element was able to move very, very quickly. And uh, I think the villagers knew, you know, we had come to stay, we'd stay the night, and so anyone who was, you know, just, they didn't want to be caught in the crossfire. So people who were innocent probably just fled the area. And then the people who were there to fight were probably preparing their fighting positions in the morning since they knew we were going to continue to go. And so, uh, early afternoon is when things just kind of kicked off. We started receiving a lot of indirect fire from a recoilless rifle from across the river It's pretty accurate, almost hit the Humvees several times. And then right after that, the dismounted element uh, got into a, a firefight, and that's when, uh, it, like immediately after that, is when they got into their firefight, and and Cal and Mark were killed. And so it was well coordinated, you know, on the on the part of the Taliban to lead with indirect fire, and then uh, start with the small arms fire, and they were able to hit both the mounted and dismounted elements pretty much simultaneously. So they were you know, well well-prepared enemy um, mm-hmm. and well-equipped in comparison to uh, what we'd faced elsewhere, you know, with the recoilless rifle and a, a sniper rifle with the scope and they had a PKM machine gun. So they were prepared. What can you tell us, Wes, about those final moments? I mean, we've we got the account in the book from a few different people. And, uh, and, and of course, we've also got the account from the low bird, the Apache pilot, Scott, who, by the way, just texted me. I'm looking forward to I'm going to talk to him soon, see if I can get him to. He's a very private guy, but trying to get him on the podcast to, to talk about it again because his testimony was was very was vital, you know, for the Mark Silver Star citation. Mm-hmm. But we have his point of view because he was low enough to watch with his naked eye, mostly. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's just, I mean, several, several of the Afghans were killed, or right? And so, yeah. just, you know, I, yeah. I, and I didn't know how close was Steve, Dave, and, I mean, what what can you tell us about those last, that last, I don't know, was it was it a matter of 20 minutes, or kind of what time period did that, when you started, or did it, was it kind of dragging on for a while? No, it was pretty quick. I would say within 15, 20 minutes. You know, like, I, like I said, I was in the mounted element, so we started, things just started exploding around us all of a sudden. So we we were moving, you know, to get out of the kill zone, as you'd say. And uh, as we were, you know, trying to move to somewhere where we, were, where we weren't getting shot at, uh, the dismounted element started taking fire. And I recall... Uh, I recall Mark saying that Mark was or that um, Cal was down, and and so that was concerning. And then I had communication with with Mark, and I know Mark was talking to the aircraft as well. And then all of a sudden, Mark was down, and I think um, I think it was the aircraft that came across the net and said he was down. Matt Duffy still had not called, so I wasn't quite sure on his status. And I guess before. Before Cal even went down, an ANA soldier was shot. That was the first casualty, and then and then Cal, and 
And so I was trying to get reports from Mark, and then all of a sudden I, I didn't have any comms with Mark, and then the aircraft told me that they had lost comms with Mark, and then that's kind of when I started panicking or, you know, becoming concerned. And so I, I called the other dismounted elements, so I had to switch channels and see what they knew, and they were aware uh, that Mark had gone off comms and that Cal was down, and so they started moving towards Matt's position. And then probably How within a matter of... How far away were they? From me, I was probably, oh, they were, I don't know, 75 to 100 meters apart. But there's a lot of, the way they irrigate, their their fields aren't like, you know, like an 80-acre field or a 40-acre field like in the U.S. Their fields are like an acre, and they're surrounded on four sides by a canal. Um, That's how they irrigate, and they'll just move like a clot of dirt, and then it'll irrigate the field, and they'll move it back, and then the water will continue. So, um and they have, you know, rows of all their canals have like pomegranate trees and other types of trees around it. So every little one acre square, you can't really see what's on the next square because it has trees around it. So it was tough. I mean, they, it was tough movement for those dismounted guys for those three days. You know, every every couple hundred meters, you're trying to jump over another canal and you got trees all around you or, you know, corn stalks you're walking through or wet rice fields or wheat fields and yeah or just an orchard of pomegranates it's it's tough terrain to try and fight through especially knowing there's someone that could be in that field or at the next canal which the taliban uses a trench line basically you know because they could get into like chest defilade and fire from it Mm -hmm. so yeah so i was probably about 150 to 200 meters from the compound where cal and mark were hit and then like I said, we had three or four dismounted elements spread out across about a two uh, a two thousand meter wide area of green zone, a vegetated area. So they'd have you know two hundred fifty five hundred meters between them. Were Mark and Cal and, and their teams their team already in this compound when they started taking fire? I think they were approaching it. The A and A guys had gone around to one side, and they they saw the uh the Taliban guy with the rifle and so an ANA guy I think he had a saw a squad automatic weapon like a, a small machine gun a light machine gun and he got in the prone position and fired at him at the Taliban and the Taliban guy shot him kind of like in the shoulder but while he was in the prone you know so that went like down into his torso and so mm-hmm. he was killed pretty quickly and then Cal and Mark and Matt entered the compound so he was, he was hiding out there hit. in the in the green, in the brush. Well, he was he was in the canal. He was in the canal. Okay. So he had good cover behind that little berm, and so he hit he hit Cal from a, a covered position, and they did the Taliban did a good job. They would initiate with a machine gun. They had a PKM, and they would use the sound of the machine gun to mask the sound of the sniper rifle. Really? Wow. Yeah. So there were two of them in that canal. Is that right? Was it like a spotter and a sniper? Well, they weren't co-located, so they kind of had it as like a perpendicular. Like, so the machine gun would hit was hitting that compound from a right angle to where the sniper was at. So they kind of uh-huh. had a uh, two positions. Hmm. How long after Cal went down did Mark go down? Was uh, it like a like one or two minutes later? Yes. Where was Steve Dave? 
Steve Dave, I think, got pinned down with that ANA element that was on the outside of the compound where the one guy was already killed. Yeah, I think Steve Dave must have been a pretty good dude. I think Mark really liked him. Is that what what kind of relationship did he have with y'all, Wes? They had a very strong relationship, and I think um, Mark. Well, Steve Dave was very good at his job as a as a linguist. He he kind of made for every village what frequencies the Taliban would be talking on and what the kind of code words were and what um, yeah he just kind of knew the area very well and he he kept a record of it. So he as a local national linguist he took his job very seriously and helped out the ODAs quite a bit. That's got to be very um, risky for him, doesn't it? Yeah, he had lost, by this point, he had already had one brother killed by the Taliban, and he was a policeman in Kandahar. And then a couple years, I think maybe it was 2011 or early 2012, his mom was killed by the Taliban as well. So, uh, But Steve Dave is Hazaran, which is like, I guess tradition says they're descendants of uh, Genghis Khan, so they kind of look Mongolian, and not so much like like they have a different appearance to them as the Pashtuns. And the Hazarans are Shia Muslim, or the Pashtuns are Sunni Muslim. And I think just like the being from a religious minority and the persecution that Steve Dave faced within his own society, I think. Uh, you know, Mark is a compassionate guy and and kind of had a soft spot in his heart for Steve Dave's situation. Hmm. What was the result of this? I guess what what happened after that? Did you did y'all finish and uh, did you go another day or what? What in the following days? What happened to that area? Yeah. So. Um, you know, immediately after that, the other dismounted element was able to work their way over towards. Matt Duffy and the sniper who had killed Cal and Mark was had been killed, and then we called in the medevac to to have them uh, evac back to Terran Cal, and then uh, we kind of secured the area. I don't, we did not clear any further that night, and that night you know, I was you know trying to write up the citations for Cal and Mark on a and send them up over the radio and and through uh, some equipment we have that can send data messages. Um, so that was tough. You know, that was a long night trying to, you know, re- recall all their contributions up over the course of the deployment and, and make sure their awards were done properly before their, you know, burial ceremonies and stuff like that. And then the next day, you know, it's kind of a blur, honestly. I think, I think we cleared the next day and finished up the village. We didn't have a whole lot left, and uh, that was kind of the Taliban's last stand. So there was more casualty, more Taliban casualties that day than just the sniper, um, and so that we we didn't even get shot at the next uh, the next day when we cleared. And then I think after that, we did get our ODA was uh, extracted and, and pulled Terran Cal for the memorial ceremony for Cal and Mark. The the Sajidif commander at the time was Brigadier General uh, Austin Miller, who is now a four-star and was previously the JSOC commander 
the Delta Force commander when he was a three-star, and now he's the four-star commander in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and replaced General Nicholson. And he was there, and uh, I remember he made a comment to us, and at the time, uh, it, I just thought it was kind of harsh. He's like, you know, death is a part of war, and, uh, you know, this is why we're all here. And I was just like, wow, Jesus, not a lot of sympathy uh, from this guy. And then he came back in January uh, for uh, an Afghan local police graduation ceremony that uh, was held. And he came out to us, and uh, he he pulled us all aside, the whole ODA, and he's like, hey, you know, I've just been watching you guys and keeping track of you after what happened in September. And you can really tell the character of an ODA uh after something tragic like that happened and you guys have done a good job of continuing the fight and get after the enemy. Some, he's like, you know, sometimes some things just can't handle it and they kind of shut down and you don't see a lot of product productivity out of them anymore. And that, and you know, like I've approached every day in my career and I think the rest of the guys on the team would say that too. everyone that knew Callum Mark is, you know, no one would want us to quit. And, and I think everyone used that deployment and that day, as a motivation to always give your best and and to use every opportunity uh, to share their story and and you know continue their legacy. So that that was a proud moment I think for us all to have honored Cal and Mark's sacrifices in a way that the highest you know special operations general in the country at the time and now now he's in charge of the, all of Afghanistan that recognized their sacrifices and and the team's continued um you know desire to honor their legacy yeah you wrote us a letter i think we got it around thanksgiving time of that year 2010 and one thing you said you know you remember mark talking about how he he was looking forward to thanksgiving and all the good food but uh, you also said commerce seemed to open up immediately in those in that area, at least in one of those villages um, right after that battle. Is, is that am I remembering correctly? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think talking about the Thanksgiving, um, there's three three hard times a year for me. Probably, you know, one is around the anniversary of their death, which is tough. Thanksgiving's probably harder just because I remember how much Mark was looking forward to it because he was going to be home for Thanksgiving that year. And uh, he just told me everything that your mom was going to be preparing and described it in such detail. I was excited for him to be home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just I think about your family and probably how hard that Thanksgiving was. Um, and that's tough. And then the the next hardest holiday for me is is Father's Day, um, you know, because Cal left two girls. And also, Mark, you know, Mark was not married and was not in a, you know, he wasn't engaged, wasn't in a serious relationship at the time. But he, you could tell he was going to be a great father, and he really enjoyed um, it. He asked me about my kids all the time. At the time, I only had two children. And... He was, I remember we had coordinated and he was going to come check on my oldest son was just one at the time. And he was going to go, you know, see my wife and visit with my kids when he got home. He promised me he was going to do that. That's just tough as Father's Day because I know 
I know Mark would have liked to have been a father. Yeah, but. definitely. He did. He wanted to be married and, and be a dad. Yeah, but in in terms of commerce, yeah, the uh, I mean, before we had even finished clearing to the end of the village, there was already uh, jingle trucks, which is like a a more rugged version of a of a semi truck in the U.S. They were already lined up. Uh, I I wouldn't want to say scores, but I mean, there's probably five or ten of them lined up for us to finish our mission, and then so that they could pass through and get to O'Shea and deliver goods. Um, because of the bazaar, the shopping area in O'Shea probably had like 400 shops like established, but at the prior to the mission, there was maybe only 20 open. And so within a matter of weeks after that mission, they probably had 80 shops open. So it quadrupled the commerce uh, coming in and out of that, that area. So it, uh, and that's another reason why it was, it was just tough to swallow when we went back to Afghanistan 11 months later and this, the next time to uh, Kandahar province, but to know that that area in Aruzgan had U.S. forces had left is like, wow, we made a big difference. And I know that people appreciated it. And I know there was a, a village elder um, that had written a letter to your family and, and thanked, uh, you know, your family and Cal's family for the sacrifices and was very appreciative. And then he was actually, I found out he was killed, uh, what was it? Several, 2012, 13, 14, something like that. He hit an IED, but he had stepped up just from being a village elder. Um, and he was kind of young to be a village elder, but he kind of tried to stay behind the scenes because of the threat that comes with responsibility in that country and that environment. And he had ended up becoming either the chief of police or the district governor, but he hit an IED, you know, a couple of years later and was killed. And he had a very young son, about the, the age of my oldest boy now, who, you know, maybe a little bit older, two or three at the time in, in 2010. And so I, I think about his family a lot. And um, but that guy definitely made the most of the situation and and tried to transfer some of the burden from you know foreigners in his country trying to provide security and. And development to where you know he he stepped up and did that for his community and is and was grateful for the opportunity and despite the risk stepped up and and he ended up paying the ultimate sacrifice as well so yeah, that i just wish there was more Ishmael. guys that's that right, right yeah that's right yeah he he was concerned he wanted he wondered if if all americans thought that all afghans were talib yeah that's right and he was a smart guy and very humble and intelligent and would take the time to explain you know cultural nuances that maybe we didn't get and he would explain to us what the underlying problem was between different tribes and villages and if every afghan was like muhammad ishmael there wouldn't be no need for americans to be there in the capacity that we are now yeah. west do you remember the the sniper's name that killed mark yeah, his name was Haji Abdul Halik. Yeah, you you told us that, and I had his name in the book, and this was a uh, one of those where I was letting I wanted my brother Joseph to help out with kind of the final edit, and he was saying I wouldn't put his name in there, Thad, and so anyway, after some talk, I went ahead and pulled it out, 
the, and surprisingly, the Air Force, uh, when they reviewed it, AFSOC, they did not s- suggest to pull it out because I had it in at that point. But mm-hmm. I pulled it out at his request. Yeah, I'll never forget that name. Yeah, he was uh, when you know when we were laying out the the dead Talibs, you know, for their families to come and recover them, or for the villagers to move them to a point where their families could could take those bodies and prepare them for burial. He was a a big guy, um, and he was a little bit older too. He's probably in his early forties and over six foot and and stocky build, like. And and some of the stories, you know, corroborated, made sense, like that when um, shop shop owners would say, oh, well, Haji Abdul Halik, you know, beat me up and took all my money. I was like, what? Like, I didn't get it. And then one, upon seeing him, it made more sense because he was just a big guy and probably a natural leader within the Taliban based upon his size, for sure. And being older, I, I would imagine he probably fought in the Mujahideen against the Russians, yeah, especially with the possession of a, a sniper rifle, which is difficult to come by out there. So, Well, Wes, uh, what else would you like to say? Maybe we should be should wrap it up now here pretty quick. You know, I, I'm glad that uh, Mark's fortunate to have a family and a brother like you that, that takes the time to, you know, share his legacy. And, and I, as a, teammate of Mark's, I appreciate the continued interaction I've had with you and your family over the last eight years. It, it definitely helps me process it all, and I know it helps Matt and the other guys, so uh, we all appreciate the relationship that has been created uh, despite the circumstances. I, I, I know that all of us that worked with, with Mark and Cal take every opportunity we can to share their story. Yeah, I don't know if you've talked to Brian Anderson at all. Um, not, he has a foundation. Much, no. Yeah. Um, no, it, it definitely affected all of us, but we're all better for having served with those guys. They, they set the, the, the bar high, uh, extremely professional and just looking forward to the day. I guess we get to see him again on the other side. <laughs> yeah. Catch up. Well, you, you are one of the several people now who named, you've got a little boy with Mark's name in it, Calvin Forrester Wilson. And that's pretty cool. I guess he's four yeah, years old so. now, huh? Yeah, he just turned four uh, last month. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we certainly appreciate that. And Wes, you have been very good to us. We didn't know who you were. You know, I don't, I don't think, you know, but you reached out to us pretty quick. And I remember being at Dover for the dignified transfer, and you know Cal's family was not there, and but I remember them calling their names or saying Calvin's name because they were telling us the order they're going to bring their bodies out of the of the aircraft. And but I do remember meeting Dale. Dale was there who escorted Calvin, and I didn't know who he was. I remember I remember him. We met him. He knew Mark. He kind of told mm-hmm. us real quick you know, he had gotten injured. I think he got shot in the foot. Is that right? Yeah, he got shot in the foot, I think, August 8th, but, yeah, early August. Yeah. And so he had said Mark had you know, definitely helped him get out of some hairy situations. And I just kind of I wish I would known, I would understood the connections even then that, that, that 
Calvin was there. He and Mark were killed almost together. I didn't, I don't guess any of us knew that at that time. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely were. We certainly appreciate your friendship to Mark and for your service to our country. You're still doing it, man. And I know you're home just temporarily and then headed back out and you've gone through some tough training, you know, there as a, as an SF guy and, I just encourage people listening to check out Mark's book if you haven't. Uh, Wes is is definitely a part of that, and you're a big help to me for getting that together and to, to Matthew uh, Matthew Glinko, who was helping me out. So we thank you very much. And uh, I, the picture that's that's part of this post on my website is, is you, Wes, with your son. Um, which son is that? That's Briggs, who was... Briggs. At the time, my only son. Now he's my oldest son. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that picture was taken back in 2012 at uh, when Mark's portrait presentation was held by the American Fallen Soldiers Project with you know Phil Taylor, and you and Matthew Duffy drove up to that uh, ceremony at the University of Alabama. In fact, I think you surprised us. I didn't. No, I think we knew you were coming, but we didn't know Duffy was coming. Sounds sound something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I had asked him if he wanted to come up because he was. He's in town, yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Um, I really, you know, this, we're, we're recording this here on the 27th at night, and this is going to release on the 29th, which would be eight years since Mark was killed in Afghanistan. Um, you know, it's I talked to my mom today, and this is this is a very hard day for her today, the 27th, because it's the last time she talked to Mark. He called her and let her know that. She may not hear from him for a little while because he is going to be on a mission. And so it's been a long time since she's heard from him. But but ever since that call, it kind of it just put her in a funk. She said the 27th was her last lucid day. I didn't really even realize that or I'd forgotten it. There's just It's crazy. There's things that I think I would know and I just, it just takes forever to kind of I have to get little bits and pieces at a time, or I can only remember bits and pieces at a time. I guess we'll sign off. I uh, appreciate everyone listening. Just uh, if you want to read the show notes, just go to thadforster.com forward slash Wes Wilson, or you can go to patriottothecore.com and then just search for Wes Wilson or go to the podcast link from there. But Wes, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, thank you for being uh, also a warrior for God and country. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.